I am Brother Cornell West, and this is Newsbeat. Hey, everyone. This is Manny Faces, producer and host of Newsbeat. Shout out to all the Aquariuses out there celebrating their birthdays. I'm one of you. And on this episode, we're celebrating the life of another one, the iconic Rosa Parks. History remembers Rosa Parks as a tired, middle-aged woman who stood up to racism and segregation in the South by literally sitting down and refusing to give up her seat on a bus to a white passenger when ordered, sparking the Montgomery bus boycott and the civil rights movement. As transformative a moment as it was, this singular act has come to define the entirety of her dynamic and multidimensional life. Much in the same way, the first four syllables of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech have come to replace the civil rights leader's radical legacy. The truth is that Rosa Parks lived an entire life of activism, beginning as a child. At a young age, for example, she famously told her mother she would rather die than be pushed around or subservient to whites. Parks became one of the first women representatives of the NAACP, led movements in Alabama, and after moving to Detroit because of death threats, protested Northern segregation. She vehemently opposed the Vietnam War, shared radical views espoused by the likes of Malcolm X, but also held MLK in high regard. Rosa Parks led a life of rebellion, and the world needs to know her whole story. On this episode, taking us beyond the bus are Jean Theo Harris, a distinguished professor of political science at Brooklyn College and author of the award-winning biography, The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks. To me, the courage that she shows that day is the courage of perseverance, the ability to keep going even after these years of activism. Yolanda Jack, public programs coordinator at the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History in Detroit, Michigan. Because she was involved in it from her, for her whole life, from a child to adulthood, she understood that uh, segregation and the treatment of one ethnicity as inferior over another ethnicity was wrong. And, as you'll hear, Rosa Parks herself. And as only Newsbeat does it, helping amplify the story of Rosa Parks' lesser-acknowledged legacy with a dope lyrical contribution is New York-based hip-hop fusion artist, DJ, educator, activist, and one of Newsbeat's artist-in-residence, Liquid. Alright, here it is. This is Rosa Parks what you didn't learn in school. December 1st, 1955, about six o'clock in the afternoon, I boarded the bus downtown Montgomery on Coach Square. As the bus proceeded out of town on the third stop, the White passengers had filled the front of the bus. When I got on the bus, the rear was filled with uh, colored passengers and they were beginning to stand. The seat I occupied was the first of the seats where the Negro passengers uh, take as they on this route. The driver noticed that the front of the bus was filled with white passengers and there would be two or three men standing. He looked back and asked that the seat where I had taken along with three other persons, one in the seat with me and two across the aisle was seated. He demanded the seat that we were occupying. The other passengers very reluctantly gave up their seat, but I refused to do so. Rosa Parks' rebellious side begins as a child. Rosa Parks was born in 1913. 
She grows up with her grandparents and her mother. Uh, her grandfather is a supporter of Marcus Garvey. And after World War I, there's an uptake of white violence against black people, in part to put black soldiers, quote, back in their place. And so where the Parkses are living is in Pine Level, Alabama. There's an upsurge of Klan violence. And her grandfather will sit up at night uh, on the porch often during this period with his shotgun to protect their family home. And a six-year-old Rosa Parks sits with him sometimes, and she says it's because she wanted to see him shoot a Ku Kluxer. So I think we have to see sort of her rebellious roots in some sense, both beginning at home and partly as a kind of personal characteristic of her. She's both a very kind of shy and reserved child, but she also has a kind of feisty side. For instance, a white bully is sort of threatening her and her brother, and she threatens back, picks up a brick, and says she's going to hurt him if he doesn't stop. Uh, another time, she's walking down the street and a white boy pushes her off the sidewalk, and she pushes him back. His mother says, I could have you arrested. Rosa Parks says, I just didn't want to be pushed. Uh, however, when she tells her grandmother that, her grandmother panics basically instructs her not to talk like that. She's going to be lynched before she's grown. And Rosa Parks gets in a big argument with her grandmother, basically saying, I'd rather be lynched than not be able to say I don't like it. So she has this sort of feisty side, even as a young person. I want to make very certain that it is understood that I have not taken a seat in the white section, as has been reported in many cases. An article came out in the newspaper on Friday morning about the Negro woman overlooked segregation. She was seated in the front seat, the white section of the bus, and refused to take a seat in the rear of the bus. That was the first newspaper account. The seat where I occupied, we were in the custom of taking this seat on the way home, even though at times on the this, on this same bus route, we occupied the same seat with quite standing if their space had been taken up, the seat had been taken up. I was very much surprised that the driver at this point demanded that I remove myself from the seat. The driver said that if I refused to leave the seat, he would have to call the police. And I told him, just call the police. What really changes it is when she meets and falls in love with, as she describes it, the first real activist I ever met, and that's Raymond Parks. She meets Raymond 1931, and Raymond is one of the local activists working on the Scottsboro case. Nine young men caught riding the rails, riding the trains for free. When they're being arrested, two young white women are also found riding the train for free, and that charge against those young men is quickly changed to rape and all but the youngest, who's 12, are sentenced to death. And so a local movement grows in Alabama to protect and defend the Scottsboro Boys, and Raymond Parks is one of the activists working on that. When she meets him, she very much admires his work, and uh, they get married in December of 1932, and she joins him in this work. Uh, and so in the first years, he's the more public activist, she's working more behind the scenes, um, she remembers late night meetings at their house, guns across the table. It's even dangerous to have a meeting around this. 
But by the 1940s, she's wanting uh, to play an even more active role. Uh, she's galled by the fact that black people are serving overseas during the war. This is World War II. Her brother's serving overseas, and yet black people are largely not able to vote at home. She wants to register to vote. She sees a picture in a local black newspaper of a local NAACP meeting. A woman in it she recognizes from middle school and she realizes, she says, that women can be part of the branch and she goes to attend her first NAACP meeting in 1943. Uh, she's the only woman there. Uh, she's actually elected branch secretary that very first day and she makes it known that she wants to register to vote. One of Montgomery's most stalwart activists, E.D. Nixon, comes by her apartment to bring her materials on registering to vote and that's going to begin a partnership that's going to change the face of American history because E.D. Nixon and Rosa Parks will set about to, in some ways, transform Montgomery's NAACP into a more active and activist branch. I put my stiletto through the heartbeat of Dixie. Let my name ring, yeah, her name ring bells from the Longhorn State to the Sippy. Late 1950s, chain gang from the plantation, chain rope for the separation. Here's your education. One time for Rosa Louise, who broke the chains of segregation. Front lines of the movement, smack dab in the middle of the war. <laughs> From the Yellow Hammer State to the Motor City, and congressional awards, it go like, ah, hush that fuzz. Everybody move to the front of the bus. I pay my fare, won't budge. I won't fight, won't argue, won't buzz. A number of years, the Negro passengers on the city bus lines of Montgomery have been humiliated, intimidated, and faced threats on this bus line. The summer before she will make her bus stand, she attends Highlander Folk School. Highlander Folk School is an adult organizer training school, and she talks about that being transformative. It's an interracial school. She attends a two-week meeting around school desegregation, white and black people, about 50 adults from across the country. Uh, she says it's one of the first times she's able to express her political beliefs in front of white people without hostility. Still and all, at the end of this two weeks, they do the go around, what are you going to do when you go back home? And Rosa Parks basically says, there's never going to be a mass movement in Montgomery. You know, white resistance is too high and black people are not unified. And so she says she's going to just keep working with the young people. She had founded the youth branch of the NAACP and she was working with young people to take greater and more you know, militant stands against segregation. And so interestingly, this is five months before she will make her stand on the bus. And Rosa Parks at this point is really pinning her hopes on the next generation. She's not necessarily seeing her generation right, change in her lifetime. She's again, over and over, they try things over and over. Largely, they don't succeed. So to me, one of the things that's particularly courageous about what she's going to do on December 1st, 1955, is that she's made stands before, other people have made stands before, and there is nothing to suggest that doing so on that day will result in anything good, and much to suggest that it may result in violence. Uh, one of her neighbors had been killed for resisting on the bus in 1950. People are fired. Black women are raped in police custody. So to me, the courage that she shows that day is the courage of perseverance, the ability to keep going even after these years of activism. Just the other day, one of the fine citizens of our community, Mrs. Rosa Parks, 
was arrested because she refused to give up her seat for a white passenger. Mrs. Rosa Parks was arrested and taken down to jail, taken from the bus, just because she refused to give up her seat. The time had just come when I had been pushed as far as I could stand to be pushed, I suppose. At present, we are in the midst of a protest, the Negro citizens of Montgomery, representing some uh, 44% of the population. 90% at least of the regular Negro bus passengers are staying off the buses, and we plan to continue until something is done. I hadn't thought that I would be the person to do this. It hadn't occurred to me. Others had gone through the same experience, some even worse experience than mine, and they all felt that the time had come that they should decide that we would have to stop supporting the bus company until we were given better service. Rosa Parks is forced to leave Montgomery in 1957, sort of eight months after the boycott's successful end. So both her and Raymond lose their jobs during the boycott. They never find steady work again. They keep getting death threats. So they are forced to leave Montgomery and they move to Detroit, where her brother and cousins are living. And again, we often cut off this second half of her story. And that if we know it, it sort of seems like the epilogue, right? And then she lived happily ever after. When in fact, Rosa Parks will spend the second half of her life even longer than she spends in Montgomery, fighting the racism of the Jim Crow North. She will describe Detroit as the Northern promised land that wasn't. And so she will take part in all sorts of movements in Detroit, including in all sorts of black power mobilizations around black political prisoners, around issues of reparations, around issues of anti-poverty programs. Can a sister get a little peace? I've been up on my feet all day since five and I barely got sleep. I've been working all week, so I started to think. Rather die on my feet than live on my knees. I never live on my knees. In the summer, in the winter, in the fall, in the spring. All day on excellence, all day on reverence. Pink and green, no elephants. No shade, no tea, no hesitant. All day on heaven sent, all day on elegance. This for Emmett Till. For young black boys and young black girls That never had a childhood Cause the world you was giving in That's why I'm never giving in She and her husband uh, moved to Detroit in 1957 After the Montgomery bus boycott Being the vocal and the, the, the iconic image of the bus boycott They were targeted financially, economically So they lost their jobs and so moved to try to find uh, more opportunities elsewhere. It's really a theme of her life that she was one who would not back down from unfairness or uh, maltreatment of her or her people. I had been pushed as far as I could stand to be pushed, I suppose. So as we saw in the Montgomery bus boycott and then this continued um, from her childhood throughout her adult life and into her elder years. After Congressman Conyers was elected, uh, she was hired into his office. And so being connected to political activities and 
um, often when he was unable to uh, meet in a community event, she would represent the office. And so she was very connected to activities and the frustrations of the community. So she was connected throughout her life here. Just as an, a person who grew up in the city of Detroit with her living here, we felt a great deal of respect of uh, and, and, and just how she was just a, a great example of how to live your life connected to the people and their uh, work and, and working in behalf and on, in service of them. And now, my friends, let the trumpet sound, let the bells ring, let the drums roll, lay out the red carpet. Here he comes, America's beloved freedom fighter, Martin Luther King. The Great March, June 23rd, 1963, was an amazing day. The belief is that it was the largest gathering of people in the history of the United States of America um, at that point, with one goal and one mind intended together. At that march, Dr. King, there was a rally at Cobo Hall, which is they walked down Woodward Avenue here in the city of Detroit. And I regularly meet people who were there and who marched in that march. And the feeling and the excitement and the true feeling of um, unity and committedness to, to each other and to the movement was palpable. The, the feeling of brotherhood and sisterhood, they say, was so strong and powerful, and, but commitment to, to, to changing the circumstances that made it be the case that people had to protest like this. A strong desire to see these changes happen. And when Dr. King spoke, I cannot begin to say to you this afternoon how thrilled I am. And I cannot begin to tell you the deep joy that comes to my heart as I participate with you in what I consider the largest and greatest demonstration for freedom ever held in the United States. It was electric and to hear the words that he's been reduced to. I know that many people know him only by that refrain, but his understanding and, and, and keen awareness and his ability to communicate that knowledge and information to the community and encourage them all to be aware and, and participate was what I think that Mrs. Parks was connected to, having been connected to each other back in 55. We have come to see that segregation is not only sociologically untenable, it is not only politically unsound, it is morally wrong and sinful. Segregation is a cancer in the body politic which must be removed before our democratic health can be realized. Because she was involved in it from her, for her whole life, from a child to adulthood, she understood that uh, segregation and the treatment of one ethnicity as inferior over another ethnicity was wrong. And so she fought it at every level. And when she encountered it here in, in the North, and of course the North always seemed to deny its place and its participation in segregationist or racial activities, she highlighted it every time she saw it and encountered it. She was the torch, she was the light. 
and Dr. King, they did that in, in Montgomery in 55. And so, of course, here, when it was apparent that that was the case, they're going to speak to it. She is an icon here in the city of Detroit. People love her mother, Rosa Parks, is uh, a beloved figure. But then in 1987, she founded with a good friend of hers, the Raymond and Rosa Parks Institute in the city of Detroit, which was focused and is still focused on working with young people to encourage them. She always believed that young people were the future and the, the way the movement lived. And so she encouraged them at, in all ways to know their history, to know who they are, and then to find themselves in the appropriate places to be the torch to light the light on unfairness as they encounter in their young lives. She is a woman who will, I expect, forever be spoken of with love and honor, knowing her integrity and her commitment to the unity and the people. She is one that will be remembered like Dr. King and the others for fighting for freedom and equality in the United States and the world. They tried to say I was tired. I feel I was more inspired. More woke, more proud, more amplified. How this idea sparked up a wildfire. Uh, more boycotts, more freedom riders, no apologizers. Who's sick and tired of being sick and tired? The sister had to sit so that we could stand higher. Uh, we could stand higher. We could stand higher. Uh, we could stand higher. Higher, higher, higher. Hush that buzz. Everybody move to the front of the bus. I pay my fare, won't budge. I won't fight, won't argue, won't bust. Oh, there it is. Once again, this is Newsbeat's producer and host, Manny Faces. Thank you, as always, for listening. As you can tell from this episode, we try to correct the historical record by cutting through the propaganda and whitewashing and shining a light on the truths too often obscured by the powers that be. We work to give lesser-known causes their rightful due. We work to spark change through journalism and music. As always, Newsbeat is brought to you by Maury Creative Studios, a growth-driven, New York-based HubSpot partner agency helping companies leverage the HubSpot platform to achieve sustainable digital growth. Check them out at morecreative.com and grow for good. Now, as always, a little more about our guests for this episode. Gene Theo Harris is a distinguished professor of political science at Brooklyn College and the author of numerous books and articles on the civil rights and black power movements, the politics of race and education, social welfare, and civil rights in post-9-11 America. Among these, her must-read biography, The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks, won a 2014 NAACP Image Award, the 2013 Letitia Woods Brown Award from the Association of Black Women Historians, and was named one of the 25 best academic titles of 2013 by choice. Her newest book, A More Beautiful and Terrible History, The Uses and Misuses of Civil Rights History, won the 2018 Brooklyn Public Library Literary Prize for Nonfiction. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, MSNBC, The Nation, The Atlantic, Slate, Salon, The Intercept, The Boston Review, and The Chronicle of Higher Education. Follow her on Twitter at Jean Theo Harris, J-E-A-N-N-E-T-H-E-O-H-A-R-I-S. Yolanda Jack is Public Programs Coordinator at the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History in Detroit, Michigan, which, since its founding in 1965, has been a leading institution dedicated to the African American experience. Its mission, to open minds and change lives through the exploration and celebration of African-American history and culture. 
Learn more about its inspiring vision, extraordinary exhibits, and more than 300 annual public events at therights.org. That's the W-R-I-G-H-T.org. And to hear more electrifying verses and explore other projects from our musical guest, New York-based hip-hop fusion artist, DJ, educator, activist, and one of our newsbeat artists in residence, Liquid, check out IamLiquid.com. That's Liquid spelled L-I-K-W-U-I-D. Once again, folks, I'm Manny Faces, and on behalf of the entire Newsbeat crew, I want to thank you once again for tuning in and checking out how we strive to illuminate the most pressing social justice issues of our time. Remember, there's a full-blown cover story accompanying this in every episode, along with extended guests and musical artist bios, and much, much more on usnewsbeat.com, including some pretty badass swag you can cop in the store to help show your support. Our unique blend of social justice journalism and original hip-hop is made possible by the generosity of listeners like you. So if you dig what you've heard, if you are moved or inspired, or perhaps you're just in love with my smooth, rich, angelic voice and can't seem to fall asleep anymore these days without hearing me whisper socially conscious truths into your ear as you drift off into sweet slumberland. And you want to hear more? Please consider contributing to the cause at usnewsbeat.com support. Subscribe and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and everywhere you listen to your favorite programs. Share what we do with those you love and even those you hate. Sometimes they're the ones that need to hear it the most. As always, one love. Power to the people. We're out.